If you are a note taker and you want a lesson title, um, you can write anger and stealing. And we're not saying you should do those things, just in case you are curious, all right, anger and stealing. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4. Uh, The first half of the book of Ephesians is our position in Christ. We have been chosen, we have been predestined, we have been saved, sanctified, the barrier of the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews have been broken down because we have both been brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the true church, the true believers, their position in Christ is forever secure and it is the foundation for what we are calling now our practice in Christ, which the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, is about. I know Jesus. I am in Jesus. I am one of His children. I am a slave of Jesus. I am connected to this body of Christ here because of what He has done on the cross. And now I practice. I walk in patterns of obedience the Lord Jesus Christ. I I still stumble. I still struggle. I still deliberately choose sin at times, but the overall patterns of my life are a practice or a walk in Christ Jesus. When we got to chapter 4, verse 1, we started to look at how we are practicing our unity in the church. And uh, Wes started us off with this lesson. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the first thing Paul talks about to the Ephesians is the importance of unity. To be connected with one another, to be on the same page. Unity in the church. And then in verse 17, which I started, we started looking at practicing holiness in our personal lives. So the first priority is unity within the church. But then we start looking at ourselves Am I a reflection of the character of God? God is loving. Am I loving? God is holy. Am I holy? God is patient. Am I patient? What does my personal life look like now that I know what I know from Ephesians 1 through 3? When it comes to our unity, chapter 4, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And why does he bring up the fact that he's a prisoner of the Lord? Because he's doing it for them. He's doing it on behalf of them. Paul is a team player. God needs Paul in prison, and Paul is more than happy to go because he is one with the body. It says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to what? Serve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this is where I would encourage you, you all should bring your own Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, we have conveniently put them in the racks. And so when I say turn to Ephesians 4, you flip to Ephesians 4, because you know where it is. And when I'm reading those verses, you can read along. And then that way you know what I'm saying is true, but also it helps you to kind of focus on those things. It says uh, in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, Just as you're also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. So you, Christian, when you come to this church, when you live your life for Christ, 
you are unified, first of all, to what we call the universal church, which is all believers. It's not just countryside and we've cornered the market on everything according to Christ Jesus. All true believers that have a true understanding of the gospel, we are all unified together. Unified against the forces of this world, promoting God's uh, kingdom, and furthering the advance of the gospel. But specifically, the church here at Ephesus is a local church. So we are a local church, and you are to be unified. So whether you come to youth group or when you're going to big church, you need to see yourself as part of the greater collective. That these people are not your opposition, they're not your enemy, they are your friends, they are your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ Jesus. And then Craig started to teach, verses 7 through 17, that God has given us gifts for the purpose of ensuring our unity. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Well, it sounds like Christmas, right? Not exactly. Why did God give grace to his believers? Why did he give gifts to believers? Verse 9, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. He gave some as apostles. He gave some as what? Prophets. He gave some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. Why? The apostles were the ones that had seen the risen Lord and had been directly commissioned by God to spread his truth and to spread his gospel. And the apostles and the prophets gave us God's word. Those men communicated the very mind of God and recorded it so this is a gift for us. And this gift does what to all believers? It unifies us. We're on the same page. We're on the same playbook. You're not doing what I want. You're not doing what Jonathan wants. You're not doing what Tom wants. You're doing what Jesus wants. Well, how do you know what Jesus wants? It's right here. Well, how did you get this? The gift of the apostles and the prophets. And then he especially gave some as evangelists that were especially well gifted at sharing the gospel to bring many more to the fold for Christ. And then it says he's given some as pastors and teachers. So now we don't have apostles, we don't have prophets, but you have pastors at your church, you have teachers at your church that open up the word of God and explain it to you and teach it to you. And what does that do? The end goal is it unifies us. It connects us. It establishes us. You know, we don't, there was a movement back in the day when I was in college where a Bible study was everyone would get in a circle and they would read a passage and they would say, what does it mean to you? Well, I just read it two seconds ago and I didn't even open up my Bible like Justin was getting on to me, but I think it means this. Oh, that's good. What about you? Well, you know, I think it means, oh, that's good too. I think it means, oh, I don't care what it means to you. I care what it meant to Paul when he wrote it. I care what it means to God. So we have people that teach it and explain to us. Verse 12, we see the result for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. 
the building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the, here we go, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper work of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So knowing what we know about our position in Christ, we first start to practice unity. I'm not here just for me. We're here for each other. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ. We're here to to love and to build up and to encourage and to equip. In order to do that properly, we have to then practice that holiness in our own personal lives. We have the head knowledge, right? But we're going to cover many different things from verse 17 all the way through chapter 5, verse 21. You can't be unified if you're an angry person. You can't be unified if you're stealing from one another. You can't be unified if you're lying to one another. You can't love and build up the saints if you're a lazy bum freeloading off of everybody else. So we take care of our own practical holiness, and when we do that, we then feed into and promote the unity of the church. In verses 17 through 24, we have persuasive instructions to putting on the new self. And when I taught that lesson, I called it simply how to live for Christ. Persuasive instructions to putting on the new self. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord. So when Paul says something, should we listen? Yes, yes we should. But when God says it too, obviously we are doubly listening to this. What is it? That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles, and the Gentiles is representative of the unbeliever. You don't, when you were an unbeliever, you thought different, you walked different, you spoke different, you acted different, not anymore. You no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so this gives us an insight into the unbeliever. The unbeliever, this world, is full of unbelievers. They're people that are darkened in their understanding. They have a hard heart. They're running hard after sin. So they do stuff that shouldn't surprise us because they hate God. That's what you were like, but no longer, verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. If you're a real Christian, if you're a real believer, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceits, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So these verses are the foundations 
for the rest of this section right here, especially verses 25 through 32. I am motivated by the instructions that Paul has given to me to lay aside my sin and to put on righteousness. And now he has given us particular implementation of putting on the new self. When I became a Christian, I repented of my sin. I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I died to old self, having been crucified with Christ. And I was risen anew in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am new in Christ. And now there are specific things that I am supposed to do. You looked already at the first implementation in Ephesians 4.25. Put off lying and put on truthfulness. So Eric taught the men and Crystal taught the women. And if you missed that lesson, I would go back and listen to that. But this is how it works for the next several verses. The same thing. A, put off. What does that mean? Well, it's like a, a, a cloak or clothes or something that is corrupt that you're wearing. You take it off. So lying. I take lying and I put it off and I throw it away. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Remember that therefore connects us back to those instructions that Paul gave. Those persuasive instructions. Laying aside falsehood. What am I supposed to do now? I am supposed to speak truth, each one of you, with your neighbor. So it's not enough to stop lying. I need to stop lying, but then I need to speak the truth. And it's all in caps because it's a quote from the Old Testament. And it was important back then to the people of Israel for unity and all that stuff. And it's important for us now. But why is lying, why is truthfulness so important? For we are members of one another. So let's go back to that idea of unity, right? We're in unity. We're in Christ together. We're one body. We don't, we don't, we don't lie to each other. I mean, you think of a family. If, you, if there's a family and there's a family member that's a liar, the things that happen, the destruction, all of those things, you have a, a friend group. And in that friend group, you have someone that's habitually a liar. Oh, this person didn't say this, and oh, I didn't say that, and, and all of those things and how destructive it is. Within the body of Christ, we have to lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one of you with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Well, today, we are going to look mostly at the second implementation, and if we have time, we will get to the third one. This one would be, Put off selfish anger and put on righteous anger. Some of you, your eyebrows are already going up a little bit. We still have the same outline. We have put off and we have put on. And remember, this is uh, similar to what we studied in Colossians 3.1. If you're a Christian, set your mind on things above. Seek the things above. Put off the sin, put on the righteousness. And here, though, Paul starts with the put on. He says, be angry. Be angry. And you're asking, it's okay to be angry? 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> There's finally one of these that I'm good at, right? I get to be angry in a way, and we'll look at that. But you are called to put on a righteous anger, a righteous anger. But very quickly, he says, be angry, and then he's going to give three commands about not letting that anger turn into the bad anger. So one command to be angry, and then three commands to follow up saying, don't take it too far. Be angry, and yet do not sin. I want you to flip to the book of Matthew. This is a, You have that Bible and the pages and all those things and stuff like that. And we're going to look at, real quick, this idea of righteous anger. Is it okay to be angry? Many times, people think that Christians are completely passive. They're completely docile. That uh, you're like a Vulcan. Where I know you don't do Star Trek, but like emotions are a bad thing. No, emotions are a gift of the Lord, but we can't take them too far. We can't let them fester. We can't let them boil over and become sin. When we look at the Lord Jesus himself, we are going to see that Jesus at times displayed a righteous anger. And we are to be like Jesus in that, but to do it in the right way. But when Jesus is angry, does he ever do it the wrong way? Nope, he's Jesus. But when we are angry, sometimes we take it too far and we do it the wrong way. This same word anger is found in chapter 5. Look at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to your brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So let's take these two ideas and reconcile them. You're telling me, Paul, to be angry. But the same word is used in Matthew 5, and it says, if I am angry, then I am guilty before God. Well, clearly... It's a different type of anger, right? The angry here is what we would call a righteous anger. I want you to go to, to Matthew 18. In Matthew 5, it would be an unrighteous anger. It would be a selfish anger. It would be an anger that is not done according to how the Lord would prescribe. In Matthew 18, we have this example of forgiveness. And Jesus begins telling a parable, and the main character in it is God. And it says in Matthew 18, 34, And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. Well, what happened in this story? What's going on? Remember the man was forgiven his debt, and it was representative of God forgiving and the man whose debt was forgiven, he went out and he found people that owed him money and he had them beaten and thrown in prison. And the king heard of this and brought that first man back in and he became angry at him. Well, why? He had forgiven and the man had not forgiven others. So the king, who represents God, is justified in his anger. This anger is a pursuit 
of godliness. It is a pursuit of what is right, of what is true, with what is acceptable. Let's look at Matthew 22. Verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out the slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves. Tell those who've been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock. All are butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their way to his own farm and to another's own business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So this is an example of the messengers are spreading the gospel. The king has invited them in and they have said no. So what does the king do? Verse 7, but the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And some of you are like, oh, man, I've never wanted to be more like God in my life. I can be enraged. I can send my armies. I can pillage them and set their stuff on fire. Remember that God always does everything perfectly. Jesus always does everything perfectly. So when God looks at this, that he invited these people to be saved, And they said no. And he sent his servants and they beat them. Yeah, he has every right to be angry about this. But God never does it out of a selfishness, out of an unjust manner. He always does it perfectly. For us, we also can be angry for God's truth. But we struggle with taking it too far with taking it to the next level. I want you to go to John 2. You know, many paint Jesus as some, you know, pacifist hippie type that that never got upset and never showed emotion and just sat around singing kumbaya and things like that. But in John 2, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So this would be like you walk over to the worship center and it's just become a money market. Become a money market. And you're like, well, our our bookstore sells books. Okay, well, first of all, we're not getting them for a profit, okay? But it's not the same idea, right? We're offering a product for you to purchase and it'll help you in your growth. These are people that were um, taking exorbitant prices and exorbitant things, and they were charging people. They weren't there for worship. They weren't there for God. They were just there for their money. And that's not what was supposed to be happening at the temple. So how does Jesus respond? Oh, well, okay, those guys, hope they learn. No. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So as people went to the temple, this was a way to extort the people. This was a way to to line their pockets, so to speak. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So this was even one of the fulfillments of the Old Testament in regards to the Messiah. When he saw people trying to corrupt and hinder the worship of God, it angered him. And so he acted 
accordingly. But he acted in righteousness. He did it perfectly. Mark 10, 13 says they were bringing children to Jesus so he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So here are people wanting children to, to get to Jesus. And they're stopping the people. And he's like, no, I want them. So he was indignant. That word indignant is a feeling or a showing of anger or annoyance at what is wrong. It was visible that Jesus was annoyed with this, that he wasn't pleased with what was happening, and he called them out on it, and he made it known. But in Mark 14, 4, we have an example of people being indignant wrongly for selfish and jealous motives. Jesus did it perfect. They didn't. Zephaniah 2, 2 says, Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Some people try to compartmentalize the Bible and say that the Old Testament is angry God. Legalistic God. But New Testament is grace and mercy and forgiveness. Well, the reality... In both, God is a jealous God, God is a vengeful God, God is a God of wrath, but he has provided in both the new and the old a way of escape. Turn to him and believe in his Messiah for your salvation. I mean, just look at Revelation. Anger and wrath is poured out upon the people because they are unrepentant in his judgment. God is angry at times. We can reflect the same characteristics and attributes of God, and anger would be one of those. I do want to point out, when it comes to these four commands, because you can go back to Ephesians, notice it says, be angry, that's one command, yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The only one that's passive is anger. And what I mean by that, it's kind of happening to you. So Jesus didn't roll into the temple saying, man, I'm looking for something to get angry at. Woohoo! All right, so we're not proactively going out. We're not, you know, searching through our Twitter feed or our Instagram feed or Snapchatty or whatever the kids do. Look at, oh, yes, I'm angry now. Woohoo! He heard. Whoa. He found out. Whoa. It, it's like when you think of the lie of evolution. Guys, when you hear that lie being perpetuated, there should be a little something welling up. And I trust God that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he has a sovereign plan, that his truth will be known, his, his kingdom will come, and all of those things. Okay, But I don't just lie down and be like, nah, oh, hum, all right. It, it's when you hear about things like I know I mentioned this the other day. Some of the high schools now have gay pride clubs. Well, you don't need to put together a scourge of accords and run them out of your high school, all right? These are unbelievers acting like unbelievers. They need your love, and they need the gospel, okay? But there's something there that should make us say, man, that's not right. That's not true. 
That's not something we should be championing and celebrating. That's acceptable. But we don't go and become ogres and mean and nasty to those people. All right, Their sin is just like all of the other sinners that are at the school. We love them and we confront them with the gospel. This is a passive imperative. When it says, and yet do not sin. Notice how quickly that happened. Be angry, yet do not sin. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So this word means just what it is. Don't transgress God's commandments. Don't violate God's law. All right, You think of commands such as contentment, peace, patience, love. Unrighteous anger violates those. You are committing that sin, but you are refusing to obey and to do those other things that have been commanded. 1 Peter 2.20 says, remember, 1 Peter is about standing firm, the Christian's response to suffering. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Let's use Paul as an example, all right? Paul is currently jail. And we looked at it. What did Paul do to get thrown in prison in the book of Ephesians? While he's he's writing Ephesians from jail. What did he do? Do you remember? Preach the gospel. There was a specific thing that happened at the temple. It's because he preached the gospel, but he had some Gentiles with him in the temple area. Because he was showing to everyone that these Gentiles had become believers of the one true God. So he was doing what God commanded him to do, and what happened to him? Boop, got thrown in jail. Who could Paul be tempted to be angry at? isn't tough. Yeah, the Jews. Man, I can't believe them. Let me just show, they are so wrong about this. They're so wrong. You know what Paul understood? Those Jews were darkened in their understanding. Those Jews were ignorant. Those Jews were callous. Those Jews, all right, need the gospel. So he's here in prison. He's not seething and infuriated that that he's here. He's dealt with it and moved on. He has been wronged. Who else is it tempted for Paul to be angry at? Why is he ultimately in jail? God put him there. God, why is this your plan? Why is this your purpose? And for us, it's like, well, yeah, okay, we know the whole story, but you, you take you for a moment. Someone has wronged you. Someone has mistreated you. Someone has taken your stuff. Someone has passed you over for an opportunity that you deserved. Someone's getting the play in time that you should have got. A sibling's getting something that you feel that you should have got and they shouldn't. What are we doing there? Are we blaming God? Are we upset at God? Are we angry at other people? When we are wronged, we patiently 
endure it because that is glorifying to God. In Numbers 25, I want you to, I want you to flip here. And this goes back to, if you're like, yeah, I'm still kind of on the fence on that whole righteous anger thing. It sounds kind of like an excuse. I would say, not that I'm a mathematician, probably 99% of the time you get angry and I get angry is not righteous anger. Let's just be clear, okay? But there are times that you can display righteous anger, and we should for the sake of the Lord. Numbers 25. While Israel remained at the city, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Remember, this is the whole story of Balaam and the donkey, and Balaam's supposed to curse the people, but he can't because God won't let him. And so the king, Balaam, was angry at Balaam because he didn't curse him. And Balaam says, look, I got a plan. I couldn't curse them, but you know what you can do? You can take your women and you can entice them, and like a moth to a flame, those fools will fall for it. And then you'll intermingle with them, and you'll distract them. You'll use immorality and things like that to tear their heart away from the one true God. Oh. They played the harlot with the daughters of Moab, where they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. That's pretty steep right there. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And this guy wasn't like, you know, he's walking in with his new Midianite wife. He wasn't walking in like, hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, why? why, Oh, y'all are sad. What's going on? No, this was someone saying, check this out. Look what I got. Thumbing up their nose at God and God's people. Verse 7, Phineas. Good old Phineas, and he's not the one with the little platypus. It's a different Phineas. I know, we get him confused sometimes. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and he pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body, So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. He was furious for the glory of the Lord. God said, worship no one except me. You should only marry other followers of me. And what you're doing is thumbing up your nose in high-handed rebellion. And so he sends a plague, and thousands of people are dying, and Phineas sees all of this, and he sees this man, and he's angry. He's right. Slays him. And why do we know that he's right? Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. God commended Phineas, commended him. 
And again, I'm not telling you to go out and start killing people, okay? Different time, different place, different laws, different rules with that nation that was happening. But sin should hurt us. Sin, there should be an element of it. There's a righteous anger which stirs us into godly action. And sometimes that means confronting. Sometimes that means praying. Sometimes that means encouraging. That's what it means, not taking the spear and driving someone. Sometimes it means getting involved at maybe a different club at school, like FCA or something like that, and trying to promote the gospel to give kids an opportunity to hear and to learn. It should motivate us. We don't have time to go there, but in Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah was the governor, and he, he heard of the, the usury that was going on, the people that were being exploited, and their money was being taken, and there was all those loans, and it says that he was very angry. He was very angry. This was a righteous, justified anger, and in it they did not sin. They did what they were supposed to do. Now, looking at the rest of these verses, okay, remember we've already seen do not sin. Goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So your anger, this isn't the anger of the Lord, this is your anger. And sometimes it can be something. You, you read something on the internet and you're angry about it. And there's a righteous anger to it, but you won't let it go. And you're going to take that attitude and you're going to take it out on other people. And you're going to allow it to, to corrupt and to warp, to embitter you. So even something that started out okay turns into something bad. But most of the time, it's not even that. It's not even that. I have a friend who didn't invite me to something, so I get angry. I have a teacher who assigned too much homework, and so a lot of times that's your mom. <laughs> and you get angry, right? That's what it is. That's the type of anger that we're dealing with most of the time. Right? My, I, my brother played with my controller, or my sister took my phone, or whatever it was. I didn't get to sit in the front seat. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This anger here is, the word means it to be a state of being intensely provoked in an angry mood. The verb, do not let, could be translated as do not sink down the sun. And the idea is, and I, I think we, we look at this wrong. Sometimes we say, let's say I, I got someone and there's a beef. Me and Edwin got a beef, okay? All right? And I'm upset at Edwin. It's like I have to reconcile everything before we both go to bed. Is that a helpful thing? Yeah, that could be. All right? But it's my anger. I'm dealing with my anger. Look, I can't go to sleep that night if I'm still angry at Edwin. Which I know, it's kind of normal to be angry. No, it isn't. Delightful fellow, okay? I do want to reconcile that, but sometimes there's people that won't pick up the phone, they won't respond to your text message. Maybe you did something bad to them and you got angry and they got angry and they won't reciprocate that anger and they feel like if we didn't completely wrap this up and put a bow on it at nighttime, I'm in sin. No, you should want to reconcile that relationship. You should want to express forgiveness. But it's talking about what you can control. And as a Christian, you can control your anger. So you don't let the sun go down on that anger. You repent. You give it to the Lord. You don't let it fester and continue. But it goes on to say, do not give the devil an opportunity. 
This word opportunity means a favorable circumstance for something. A favorable circumstance for something. How does our anger give an opportunity for sin? Help me out here. It distracts, man, it's like the bull that sees the, the red thing, and I don't know if that's true or not, but you see the bull sees the red thing, and brrr, it charges, even into a wall or whatever it might be, depending on which cartoon you're watching. We get angry, and we forget about the glory of God, we forget about his kingdom, and all we can think about is our anger. How else does anger give the devil an opportunity? Leads us into more sin. When I'm angry, I say things that are hurtful. I'm not respectful as I should be. A lot of times we say things that we don't even mean. Never happened to you? And while I'm here, supposed to be representing the Lord Jesus Christ, practicing my walk in Him, other people see you as an angry person not representing Christ. And with anger, how long does it take to exhibit itself? Like that. Sometimes there's things that we just can't take back. And the reality is, one way, shape, or form, we all struggle with anger. And so how do we cut it off on the front end? We have to continually set our mind on things above. And we have to put off that sin when it starts welling up. And we have to put on the opposite effect. The opposite is righteous anger, or it could be contentment, could be peace, it could be love, it could be joy, it could be patience. All of those things. 1 Peter 4.8, we don't have time to go there, but it talks about how we are to be humble. We are to be submissive to leadership. And in the context of it, it goes on to say that don't forget that the devil is roaring around like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Even in your relationship with your parents, guys, you're, you're wanting to grow into adulthood and you're oh so close to being on your own. But you still have mom and dad and you're honoring and obeying them, right? You're still under their roof and it's their rules and sometimes that, that chaffs against what you want and you get upset about it. When we get upset about it, we're not showing them the love that they deserve. And we're not modeling Christ to our friends and to our, our siblings. We give Satan a foothold and an opportunity because he wants to distract us. And in anger, he wants to divide us. He doesn't want us to be unified. And he wants us rushing after worldly pursuits. And he uses those things to, to tarnish us and to distract us. And you could probably think of a number of things. I just want you to think for you personally. What are some, some areas, times, some people that you typically get angry at? I would, I would call them triggers, okay? So for instance, if someone is an alcoholic, if they are a drunkard, what do you think they shouldn't do? They shouldn't go into that bar and sit up at that bar table and watch everybody else drinking. Well, you can't go hide in a hole, hermit. 
So you're going to be out in the world if you're like, man, I get really angry when I drive. Well, just don't drive. How's that going to work for you? All right? I'm 40 years old. Mom, come pick me up. Now, you got it. You're part of the world. And instead of escaping, instead of escaping, you got to say, when are the times that I am tempted to be angry? Is it in the morning when it's a rush and we're all doing stuff? Is it at night when they tell me to go to bed? Is it when I get that homework assignment? Is it when I open up that report card? Is it when I'm playing that sporting event or whatever it might be? Is it when coach is talking to me? And we need to identify those things. And we need to prayerfully approach those. And we want to put in maximum effort knowing that we are going to stumble. We are going to sin. But when, we, when we're tempted, we set our minds on things above, we put off and we put on. But then if we give in to that sin, then we graciously and humbly repent and seek forgiveness. Might even have been this morning. There's some word you said to your mom when she told you to get out the, the door. Go back to her. Express that repentance because, guys, a Christian is doing the right thing. A Christian is also seeking reconciliation and showing repentance when we are wrong. Those are very, very important to us. So I I knew it. We weren't going to get to the third implementation. I'll have to save that as a special item down the road so you guys just don't steal anything, okay? We'll talk about that another time. But how do I implement this? And Dale, you can change my lesson title, unless you already submitted it, just to anger. Yeah, okay. He's so efficient. Can't get angry at that. All right, how am I implementing this? Number one, there are times I should put on righteous anger. You alive, wake up, stir it up. There are times that that is appropriate, right? That righteous anger stirs us to righteous action, Christ-like action. Number two, I cannot let that righteous anger fester and boil over into a sinful mindset, attitude, or action. Can't do that. I'm upset at this world. I'm upset at the lies that's being told. I cannot let that cross over to the next. Number three, I need to carefully weigh out the consequences of selfish anger and root it out of my life. I need to be seen of a person of love of grace, humility, and a person of repentance when I am in anger. You do those things, God will be glorified, and believer, your life will be better because of your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a great and awesome God, and we thank you so much for this morning. I pray that each one of us would look at our own heart and our own life, that we would repent of sin that we would seek to be loving and gracious and kind, that we would be zealous, fervent, jealous for you and your truth and your kingdom. But we would not use that as an excuse to carry out our personal vendettas and to display selfish, ungodly anger. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray.